Father, we thank you for uh, this time to gather. We thank you that you are God who uh, loves to give good gifts to your children, and that you are a speaking God who, uh, who has spoken most clearly in your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open. Um, would you just renew our minds um, as we approach a very difficult but important topic? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new to SOMA, um, our vision as a church, one of, the, one of the things we believe that God has burdened us with is to become a community practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. This is what we call formation or discipleship, a vision to be not just religious, uh, good religious people, but to truly be formed into new, whole disciples of Jesus. And we talk a lot about practicing the way, and we teach on that. And so a couple times a year, we will kind of pause whatever we're doing in terms of working through a book or another topic, and we will drop in and teach one of these spiritual formation series. And so over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be looking at this practice of simplicity and generosity. And uh, if you've been following with us through the book of Acts over the last several months, you know that one of the key themes in the early book of Acts is this idea of generosity. We see in Acts 4, which our prayer of generosity comes from, that this group of people was, they were together. The Spirit of God brought them together in a powerful way. They, they were one heart and one mind, right? They were united with God and united with each other. And it led to this just radical generosity that's just not natural. When groups of people come together, um, you don't tend to see abundance break out. You tend to see scarcity and competition and greed. And so it's a very unusual thing. And, and, and it's easy for us just to kind of idealize that and say, well, that's just what happens when the church comes together and God's at work. But the reality is um, we have to learn that way. And there's a whole body of teaching in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Again, the same author that wrote the book of Acts also wrote the book of Luke, which has been called really a gospel of economics and a gospel where God talks a lot about poverty and generosity and, and simplicity. And so if you were to double click on what's happening in Acts 4, you could easily go back and see and lift the hood and kind of see all of the things that went into creating this kind of community. And, and that's what we want to do in this series is go back to the Gospels and say, what is it in the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus that he was inviting people to experience that then kind of flowered into this movement that we see in the early church? And so we're going to look at this practice of simplicity and generosity. And again, with the practices the goal is not the practice, right? The practice itself has no power. When we say practicing the way of Jesus, the goal is Jesus, right? It's to be with Jesus, to come like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. He is the goal of spiritual formation. And so these practices don't change us, right? They're not like, you know, morals or legalisms that if we just do these things, we'll become good people. But they, they do put us in the pathway of transformation, right? Practices rewire and reorient us towards God, and they provide the kindling for the Spirit to do a work of transformation over time in our lives. It's apprenticing ourselves to the way of Jesus, right? That's what the practices are all about. It's about opening ourselves to God, to a kind of freedom and joy and power that we all long to experience as human beings, and we say this is found in Jesus. And so today, all I want to do, we're going to be doing this for the next five weeks, talking about simplicity and generosity. All I want to do today is just frame up for you why this is important, right? Like uh, Simon Sinek says, before you talk about the what and the how, you got to talk about why. And that's all that I want to do today is just to ask the question, why? What's at stake as we talk about simplicity and generosity? I want to clear up some misconceptions, even as you hear those words, maybe some things come to your mind. Um, and I want to talk about what's at stake 
uh, in this so that as we move into these other uh, components of the series, uh, we'll put them in some context. So this will be part Bible study, part uh, cultural commentary, and then part introduction to this practice of simplicity and generosity. So let's uh, look together at one of the more well-known stories in Luke chapter 12 about um, possessions. So it starts uh, with a man who comes to Jesus, and if you look there in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So in those times, ancient times, in Palestine, people would approach a rabbi if they had a legal matter that needed to be settled. And so on the face of it, it seems that we have a family dispute, a legal complaint over an equitable division of the family inheritance. That's what seems to be going on the surface. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to go beneath the surface, beneath the waterline, and actually dial into something else that's happening here. Um, Jesus shows us that this is actually a deeper heart problem that's going on here. So verse 14, he says, friend, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out, be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So what Jesus is saying is, on the surface, yes, it looks like this is about a family inheritance or, or a justice issue. But actually, beneath the surface, we have a man who's looking for an advocate who will side with him and provide a sort of spiritual and legal cover for his greed. I don't know if that sounds familiar or not. People come, and on the surface, it seems like there's one issue. Jesus shines the spotlight on a deeper heart issue, and he says, be on guard and watch out. That's a, that's a double imperative or a double command. There's a kind of vigilance here that Jesus rarely uses in the Gospels. When Jesus says, watch out and be on guard, he's saying, be careful, right? Like, this is like a um, kind of, if you move into a new home, um, you know, one of the first things you have to do is to get a radon test. It's a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that can do a lot of harm if you're not aware of it. And if you have a certain level, I think it's above three or four, uh, you have to have some remediation done, have a radar detector installed, a radon detector installed and things like that. that. That's kind of what Jesus is saying is that this thing I'm about to talk to you about is like a spiritual radon. It can fill your heart and fill your life in ways that you're just blind to. And it's a real danger. It's one of the most dangerous things that I'm going to talk to you about in terms of the well-being of your soul and life. He says, watch out, be on guard against greed. Greed here is the word for covetousness. It literally means a striving for or an infinite hunger for more. More possessions, more power, more status, more wealth, more money. Jesus says, be careful with greed. Now, it's interesting we don't often talk about greed, right? We talk about all kinds of dangers for Christians, dangers for disciples. When the greed sermons come, it's amazing how it's kind of a thin crowd. We don't tend to think, we always think this is somebody else's problem, so right now, I just want to invite you to not assume this message is for somebody else. I want to invite myself to not assume that I'm just giving this message to you, but I want you to think about yourself and to really take an honest assessment of your own heart and life, because Jesus says, you better watch out. All of us better be on guard. There's a vigilance that's required. And he says, one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of stuff, the abundance of possessions. Contrary to popular opinion, more stuff does not equate to more flourishing in the ways that matter. Actually, they're often inversely related. The more stuff we have, the more we're pursuing things, the more things begin to control and dominate 
our lives. He goes on to tell this parable to illustrate this, which was a common technique in teaching. Jesus would draw from kind of uh, everyday life, and he would tell these parables, which are essentially, they were kind of stories that communicated a deeper kingdom truth about life. He says, a rich man's land was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? Now, let's just stop there. Like, just pay attention to the fact that um, when it says the land was productive, what, he, what essentially Jesus is saying is God blessed this person's endeavors, right? Like this is an agrarian society. You don't control the soil. You can create the conditions, but you don't control the outcome. So he's saying God blesses this land. There's no unjust acquisition of wealth here. This is a man doing his job, um, and he experiences a successful year. And what's so striking to me is, you, as I was reading this passage, is like how ordinary this response would just be for all of us. This is like how it works. If economics 101 in college, you know, if you're in business and you're uh, an investor, um, like this is just common sense in America. Like there's nothing in this passage that would seem strange, and yet that's why it's so strange. Notice what he says here. Um, I had this good year. He's talking to himself. What should I do? I don't have enough capacity to store the excess from this successful year. So I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, so he's engaging in some happy self-talk here, you have many goods, self, stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Again, an ordinary response to a problem we all wish we had, right? Like I wish that business was going so well, I wish that life was going so well, that I had to build bigger barns. And his response is probably like many of ours. When you face a lack of capacity and life's going well, you leverage that success for future compounding prosperity, right? This is basic capitalism 101. Increase capacity, reinvest the dividends to accumulate more profit, build and diversify your portfolio, store the excess, sell the business, and enjoy an early retirement, right? Like that is the American dream in a nutshell. But notice the man's focus through the passage in the use of personal pronouns. Do you see how many times the pronouns I, me, my, myself show up in this passage? I will do this. I have done this. Like there's a sense in which this man has become so self-preoccupied, so self-righteous that he looks at God's blessing in his life and he says, it's my wisdom it's my strategizing. It's my business acumen. It's my pedigree. It's my education. It's my hard work that has brought me all of this success. So what I'll do is continue to leverage the results of my compounding productivity in ways that bless me and ensure an easy life. When God kind of enters into this happy conversation and disrupts it, God says to him, you fool. Now, fool is a strong word. Jesus says we should be careful about using the word fool. Fool in the wisdom literature, the Proverbs in the Old Testament, and Ecclesiastes characterize literally the word fool means a stupid person. Not like your IQ, but the stupid person in the Old Testament is one who lives against the grain of the way that God's designed the universe to work. And by that I mean they seek progress in the world. They seek abundance without the presence and the power of God. That's the essence of a fool. There is no God. Everything's on me. So it's up to me to determine my future, and I'm going to seek abundance without the power and the presence of God. And so all of his attention and focus turns inward. 
There's a self-centeredness here. And that's what he says in verse 21. And he goes on to say, this very night your life is demanded of you. And these things that you've prepared, you've spent your whole life accumulating. Whose will they be? And the answer is nobody's. Like you don't take this stuff with you. It all goes back in the box. You're going to pass this off to your children. Even if you become a multimillionaire and you accumulate financial independence, do you know how long it takes for generational wealth to stop, according to the most recent research? One, maybe two generations. Like our kids are just not that smart, right? Like they're going to, they're going to do something different than what we wanted. Like it's not going to last. And he says that's how it is with the one who stores up, literally who treasures himself rather than being rich towards God. That's the problem in this passage. It is a self-centeredness. It is a lack of vision for the kingdom of God, the larger purpose and meaning of our lives that leads to a self-destructive, self-centered, self-righteous, self-preoccupation. Jesus' basic point here should be obvious. The good life isn't found in the greedy pursuit of more. And he goes on to raise the stakes here um, and say, you know, as a matter of fact, this is so dangerous that he goes on in Luke 16, which we read earlier, to say you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. The pursuit of more acquires a name in Luke chapter 16, and the name is mammon. Jesus says this pursuit is demonic. It's actually one of the gravest threats to our discipleship. John Chrysostom was a fourth century preacher. In that passage, it says it's impossible, one translation says, to serve both God and mammon. And he says, we want to take things that Jesus says are impossible and see if they're possible. Really? Let's see. One, one author says, you can't serve God and moonlight with greed and gain. It just doesn't work. So I want to talk for just a few minutes about mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. It's one of the only binaries that Jesus presents in the Gospels. He, he doesn't present this binary with sexuality. He doesn't present this binary with technology. He doesn't present this binary with anything else. The only time he says either or is when it comes to mammon. You can't serve God or mammon. So we need to pay attention here, and we need to understand what mammon is and what it's not. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, says this about mammon. The God of humankind is given a curious name in this story, mammon. Mammon means possessions or property. Today, we might legitimately translate mammon as things, money, gain, or success. The god mammon is left with its pagan name in the Greek text, and in most translations, in order to remind readers that mammon, and this is key, just underline this, highlight this, is, if you don't leave with anything else that I say, just remember this. Mammon is a spiritual force who works with tremendous attractional power to draw us into its orbit and out from under service to Christ. Mammon is an Aramaic word that's left untranslated on purpose, transliterated into the Greek, because they wanted to give it a, the, the authors, Luke wants to give it a personal character, wants to personify this as a spiritual power, not just an impersonal medium of exchange. We talk about money in impersonal terms. Right? Marketplace terms, we reduce it to a commodity. And Jesus says it's actually a spiritual power. Richard Foster, in his great book, Freedom of Simplicity, which I would highly recommend that you, uh, if you're interested in learning more about this practice of simplicity, one of the best books out there from a great devotional master, says it like this. When Jesus uses the Aramaic term mammon to refer to wealth, 
He is giving it a personal and spiritual character. He is personifying mammon as a rival god. In saying this, Jesus is making it unmistakably clear that money is not some impersonal medium of exchange. Money is not something that is morally neutral, a resource to be used in good or bad ways, depending solely upon our attitude toward it. Mammon is a power that seeks to dominate us. You don't just do stuff with your money. Your money does stuff to you. Your possessions do things to you. They seek to dominate you, manipulate you, shape you, recruit you, master you. Douglas Jones puts it the most pointedly in his book, Dismissing Jesus, in a section on mammon. He says, Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Think about that for a second. Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental, fundamental distinction in all of life in history. He didn't divide the world into left or right, liberal or conservative, the envious versus the entrepreneur, or Christian versus Muslim. Jesus didn't make mammon a side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as a direct competitor to God. Mammon is a demonic power. And it's an idol. It's a rival God. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? This is an ancient evil. If you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God provides them all that they could ever want or need. They're flourishing in the garden, in their relationship with God, in their relationship with each other. They have everything they could possibly need, everything we think we need, they had. And the serpent shows up and says what? Just a little bit more. God's holding out on you. You just need a little bit more. That's the temptation of mammon. And it's idolatry. Colossians 3 says it like this, Therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly or fleshly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The only one of these called idolatry is greed. Money is a god. It's a demonic power. It's seeking to destroy us. And it's a threat to our well-being, Jesus says. It's a threat for at least two reasons. One, obviously Jesus says it competes with God for our allegiance. Mammon is a spiritual power that is not just seeking like us to buy things or purchase things or consume things, but rather it is recruiting our imagination. It's recruiting our vision, our allegiance, our loyalty. Like a God, mammon promises God-like things to us, God-like power to us, right? What does mammon promise us? Security. It promises us power. It promises control, freedom, significance. It plays on the disordered desires of greed internally. Mammon surrounds us and it orients us towards self-preoccupation, towards the acquisition, perpetual, infinite acquisition of more and more and more. It's a spirit of grasping, a spirit of trying to acquire, to possess, to own things and people. That's why Jesus uses evangelistic, like conversion-like language. Sell your possessions and come follow me. Anyone who wants to follow me has to deny himself, sell everything, and follow me. Not because you literally always have to sell everything to follow Jesus. What he's saying is, this is the kind of commitment that mammon requires. It is a full-on, allegiance-seeking, demonic power. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this, Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, many foolish and harmful desires 
which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money, the attachment to money is, is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It competes with God. And it severs the cords of compassion and solidarity that bind us to each other. I, like, we see that in the story of the rich man. Like, he, he's so focused on himself, and he sees his fellow human beings as competitors, economic competitors, not fellow image bearers who he's created to collaborate with in the Imago Dei and the making of culture and the extending of God's love in the world. Now, at this point, I want to just kind of stop and talk about how mammon is formed in us today. Because again, I think it's easy for us to say, well, that's not me. I'm not the rich man. I'm ba- barely making it. I'm middle class or whatever. I'm working class. And, and I want us to see that this isn't just about you as an individual and the choices that you make, but rather there's, there's formation and deformation that's happening. And there is a way of mammon that we have to learn to discern around us. We're not just individuals that make choices. We also exist in a social context that is full of mammon, kind of the, the spirit of mammon. And we have to be so careful to discern that and to be able to name that, right? Like if you go, if, you, if you're struggling with addic- addiction, first thing they're going to tell you when you go into addiction, right, and, into recovery and AA, is you've got to admit that you have a problem and you should, you've got to see the problem for what it really is. You've got to understand the full context of the problem. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writing to people that were whose imaginations are being recruited by the Roman Empire with all of their architecture and power and money and success and fame. He writes this. He says, Don't be conformed to the patterns of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Rome was a massive propaganda machine seeking to recruit the affections of disciples of Jesus through their temples, their colosseums, their educational institutions, their way of life, their literature, their poetry. It was all aimed at capturing your imagination and conforming you to the way of Rome, not the way of Jesus. Christians had to learn that there are patterns. Every age has patterns for how these things work themselves out, and we've got to learn to discern and see those patterns because it's the air that we breathe, right? It's the water that we swim in. And here's what I want to say that I I hope is not uh, overly offensive, but I just, I want us to lift the curtain on America and like our society, and, and this is not because I hate America. I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this country. I'm grateful to have been raised here. I'm grateful for the opportunities, but I want to lift the veil and, and make sure that we don't miss what's happening around us. And I want to just say this, that I think we need to learn as Christians to see mammon as the discipleship operating system of our society. Mammon is the discipleship. It is seeking to disciple us. It's seeking to form us, the spirit of mammon, our economy, right? Like our way of life is built on some principles of mammon that we need to examine and we need to be critically um, not assuming that we understand, right? The narratives, the systems, the institutions, the habits, the practices, there is propaganda all around us seeking to play on the disordered desires of our hearts, And so what I want to do for just a few minutes is just to describe that, because I think it's helpful for us to maybe take a step back. If you're an immigrant, you're a refugee, your parents were immigrants and refugees, like you probably know this to be true. You've seen this because you didn't grow up here, but for those of us who grew up here, it's hard for us oftentimes to see this. 
Just for a few minutes, um, I want to summarize. There's a great documentary called The Century of Self. It's available on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's four hours. So if you don't have four hours, I watched it for you or some of it for you. So I'm going to describe it and some other research so you don't have to. That's what I do. I, I watch things so you don't have to. But let me just take us back a century. And let's think about all that's happened in the last century. Uh, just think about this. A generation ago, our grandparents and great-grandparents were living through the Great Depression. Just a, a shocking cultural event that had massive ramifications for how people lived. And, and to live and to survive the Great Depression is to embrace a way of life that is about frugality and about thrift, right? It, it's not about excess. It's about, you know, just making sure that you hold on to what you have. And so that generation sends their kids off to war in World War II to fight Hitler and the Nazis and one of the things that happens during that wartime economy is that there's more production of goods that are being produced at rates never seen before. And there's actually an overproduction of goods. And when, when people return from war, post-World War II, the question that's being asked by everybody who's policymaker or planning in America is, how do we transform our society? How do we transform our society? How do we foster more economic prosperity? And there's a shift because those consumer goods need to be bought, we're not going to pull back on production. Let's just continue to increase production, which increases prosperity. There's a shift in our society, and there's this kind of partnership or collaboration between the government and corporate America and Wall Street and manufacturers and eventually mass media to kind of uh, shift the way we think about our basic economic goals, right? From one of meeting basic human needs and survival and functionality and thrift to creating new ones creating new desires. And it all really started with uh, Sigmund Freud. A lot of people don't know this. Some of you guys know Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. His theory of human personality was underneath a lot of what was driving this new uh, kind of approach to society. Freud's basic belief about the human being, he was much, very much a pessimist, having lived through several wars. Um, he said that people are driven by irrational, unconscious, hidden forces within, fear and anxiety and guilt. And those unconscious, irrational forces could be easily manipulated by authoritarian leaders. So he was very concerned about group behavior and mob mentality. Actually, it was the Nazis who first took Freud's ideas about the human person and turned them into an entire state, like a state-driven approach to thinking about how we organize society. And so they had a ministry of propaganda, and they sought to intentionally manipulate people's fear and to use Freud's theory. Now, uh, after the war... Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who most people have never heard of, he's the father of modern advertising, marketing, and public relations, started the first council for public relations. He takes his uncle Siggy's ideas, and he brings them to America, and he says, man, if you can do this propaganda over here in Germany and France, what would it look like to bring this propaganda back and to apply this to the consumer marketplace? Literally, he wrote a book called Propaganda, and here's what he says in his book. Now, I'm not, if you're in marketing, you know, advertising, God bless you, I'm a marketing undergrad, but I'm just, you need to know what we're doing, okay? So, says this, he says this, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we've never heard of. So Edward Bernays brings propaganda to Madison Avenue and, and essentially parlays these relationships, and they begin to exploit and aggravate and monetize the desires of the public through what 
came to be known as inadequacy marketing, right? You play on a sense of inadequacy, and then you promise a product that's going to deliver a certain sort of solution or a certain kind of feeling. This is what one economist called the new gospel of consumption that took off in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Charles Kettering, who at the time was the director of research at GM, says this, the key to economic prosperity is the organized creation of dissatisfaction the more we can make you dissatisfied and and stimulate and inflame your desires. We can create infinite desires for infinite goods, and we can build an entire economy on this. And make no mistake, this was an intentional effort to build an economy around this. Economist Victor Lebo says just a couple decades later, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. We need desire to continually outpace and overshadow needs. And thus we have the rise of what came to be known as planned obsolescence, right? It's why you want new iPhones, new Apple products, new coffee makers, right? Like we, we build something that's going to phase out not too long because we don't want people to get bored with it, but not too short because we don't want them to get angry at us. So there's just this optimal amount of time where you start to develop a habit and then we upgrade you. We, we elevate you to the next one. That, that kind of idea of planned obsolescence is then marketed through mass media and now we have social media and we have just what some people have called the war of attention, right? Where we have been turned into algorithms, right? And Facebook and Pinterest and all of these organizations are constantly seeking to grab and to monetize and to hack our attention for financial gain. And this is just the world we live in. It's just flip down in Instagram. What are, you, what, what are they doing? They're, they're selling you more and more desires, making you feel insecure, making you feel like you're not enough, playing on your shame, playing on your guilt, playing on your fear, playing on your anxiety, playing on your desires for more. If you want to watch a great documentary about that, watch The Social Dilemma. It's fascinating. It, essentially, it's just, it's a confession of all Facebook, like a bunch of Facebook executives and Twitter executives and all the people who created modern social media basically saying, this is dangerous and it's wrong. And they're just kind of throwing it out there saying things need to change. So this is the gravitational pull of modern life. This is what we grew up in. And, and what I want us to see is like how historically anomalous. This is just one generation. It never existed before the 20th century with this kind of intensity. We built something that now to us seems so normal. It seems normal just to think about more, bigger, better, faster, stronger. I mean, when was the last time you were having a conversation with a friend and you're like, man, what, you know, what, are, you, what's your, what are your goals in life? And somebody's like, you know, I'm just thinking about downward mobility, just really thinking about less. You know, I just wanted to have less. I want to downsize my house. I don't, no, no more house projects. Matter of fact, I want to start demoing some stuff and just leave it open. Like, I, like never, you never had that conversation. It is, we are a society built on a story of mammon, a story of more. I want to sh- throw this up here because Jonah Sachs in his book, The Rise of uh, the Story Wars, he talks about this. Like this, this is an intentional story, an intentional narrative crafted by mass media to tell us a story about the good life. The story, any good story has, a, has, a, has an arc to it, right? A narrative arc. Why are we here? The pleasure principle. What's wrong with the world? Unmet desires, right? You just haven't had your desires met. You have frustrated desires. What's the solution? More. More of the same stuff that's not satisfying currently your desires. And then what's the good life? Abundance. 
but without God. That's the secular script. As this becomes more and more normalized, the story gets woven into our institutions, into our consumption patterns, gets woven into our systems and our structures and our laws and all the soft ways that this gets woven into our lives and our practices and our habits. We find ourselves with a lot of heartache as we realize that more doesn't really equal more. More can actually equal less. Less of the things that really matter, less happiness, less well-being. So the first step to break the power of mammon in our lives is just to name it. Just to name the forces that are shaping us, that are shaping our imagination and our habits. So that's the why of the series, right? That brings us back to Luke chapter 12. How do we break the power of mammon? We're going to talk about that over the next several weeks, but it's really found here in summary form in these two lines in 15 and 21. Watch out, be on guard against all greed. One's life is not in the abundance of your possessions. And then that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the heart of simplicity and generosity. It's resisting the script that, that more is better, that more is the good life, that excess and, and, and abundance without God is the good life. And, and what simplicity and generosity want to invite us into is to move us away from the complexity and the duplicity of self-preoccupation and a self-oriented life to a life that's focused on what Jesus says is not treasuring myself, not privileging myself and my needs and wants and my desires. And again, I'm not against like meeting basic needs. Of course, we have basic needs, but it's like, what are those basic needs? What does it actually look like to be honest about what we truly need and to recognize how easily those get distorted and twisted, both internally and the forces outside of us? To resist treasuring up things for ourselves as the good life and to learn to be rich towards God. That's, that's the idea, to create space for freedom, to create space for love, for generosity towards God and towards his kingdom, to a life of self-giving love. That's the invitation of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12. So let me just close by, I just want to be really clear about what we're doing with this series and what we mean and what we don't mean. So um, when you hear simplicity and generosity, you hear words like that, Um, there can be misunderstandings. So let me just say what simplicity is not. Simplicity in the way that we're using it in this series and what Jesus is talking about for his disciples is not a bougie trend. Okay, we're not talking about a bougie trend of design. I love Marie Kondo as as much as the next person, right? What sparks joy? Great question to ask yourself. I'm all about organization, decluttering. I'm a minimalist just by nature. Uh, I, I gravitate towards that. I love Marie Kondo, but this is not that, okay? We're not talking about that, although we can incorporate some of her principles. Uh, We're not talking about the minimalists or like what's called simple living, like these magazines that present like this upper middle class privilege kind of vision for life that's like, how can I, instead of having 10 sweaters that are 50 bucks a piece, how about a $1,200 cashmere sweater? Like that's not... That's not what we're doing. We're not talking about chic, modern architecture and design, okay? Like, I want to avoid the trap of making this a middle to upper middle class conversation that immediately those of us who come from working class backgrounds um, or uh, maybe live in poverty, those who are our neighbors that we're serving, immediately go, this is not for me. Um, And here's the thing we need to recognize, that true simplicity cuts across class, right? Um, I grew up in Kentucky, 
the, the land of hollers, mobile, mobile homes. I grew up in a working class community. Um, we were watching the uh, minimalists. If you haven't seen them, they're not Christians that I know of, but they, they do a lot of this work on simplicity from a, a non-Christian standpoint. And uh, their documentary on Netflix is fascinating. And one of the things they talked about in their documentary is how their attachment to stuff and possessions and success actually was rooted in growing up in poverty. Both of them grew up in extremely poor homes with lots of dysfunction, alcoholism, and abuse. And it was this sense that if I can escape this and I can make a bunch of money and I can be successful, then I'll never have to experience what I experienced growing up as a child. So this is not just a conversation for middle or upper middle class. You can be poor and be greedy. You can be rich and be content, Jesus says in the the Gospels. There's the righteous poor, there's the unrighteous poor, there's the righteous wealthy, there's the unrighteous wealthy. It's not about how much money you make. Now, the branding is bougie, I'll give you that, right? Like all of this minimalism stuff, it's super middle to upper middle class, privilege type uh, branding. But the conversation is for disciples of Jesus. Like we ought to be, listen, this is something, like you know that Christians have been doing simplicity for thousands of years, right? Like some of us are rediscovering this. They were doing simplicity in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century. Like this has been going on for a long time. And so um, we need to remember that. The second thing, simplicity is not asceticism. It's not legalism. It's not, um, you know, how hard can I make my life? Like sometimes there's this, you know, tendency if we maybe make a lot of money to want to just sell everything and just, you know, go into voluntary poverty. That's the mentality of a person who's never actually been poor before. Right? If you've grown up in poverty, you know how heart-wrenching, how difficult involuntary poverty really is. And so this is not asceticism. This is not, you know, uh, let's avoid this ditch and go over into this ditch. Now, God may call some of us, as he's done many monastics and many monks and sisters and brothers over the years, to embrace a lifestyle of voluntary poverty and to enter into a, mon- a monastery or to sell our possessions. Lots of wealthy people have done that over the generations, but that's not God's call for everyone. So I'm not talking about some kind of modern asceticism. What we are talking about is something much deeper. Simplicity, in the words of Richard Foster again, is simply this, an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Let me give you my simple definition of this, trying to take foster and just make it a little bit easier. I would say that simplicity is the freedom to limit or let go of anything that distracts us from joyfully giving more of ourselves to Jesus and to his kingdom. Now, what what I want you to pay attention to in these definitions is a couple of things. One, I want you to notice that simplicity starts inside. That's what the minimalists miss. That's what all the secular conversation around this misses. This is about a simplicity of heart first before it's about a simplicity of our outer world. And man, you can simplify your outer world and still have so much going on in here that is cluttered and misdirected and chasing the wrong things, right? Like any of you have tried to do this, no, it doesn't take away the anxiety, it doesn't take away the fear. There has to be something deeper. So it's an inside, a simplicity of heart, which Steve will be talking about next week. It is a seeking first God and his kingdom, which Jesus goes on to talk about in Luke chapter 12, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things will be added to you, right? So it's, a, it's an inner simplicity, an inner unity of pursuing the kingdom of God that then gives rise to the outer behaviors. It's creating space for what really matters. It's not just about decluttering your life. It's about creating space, time, energy, money, 
for relationships, for God, for the things that really matter, God's love and God's kingdom. That's what we're after. Simplicity, hear me, is not the goal. This is not, the, the simplicity, simplicity is not the goal. Jesus and his kingdom is the goal. And then, I, then finally, I just want you to notice that the goal of this, the end of this is generosity. Simplicity always goes together with generosity. We don't simplify for self-care, self-fulfillment, self-preoccupation. Um, we simplify so that we can be generous to others. So we're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to spend a week talking about simplicity of heart, simplicity of speech, simplicity of our possessions, and then we'll end the series at the beginning of March talking about generosity. We have a bunch of resources to share with you. I want to invite you to check out um, as you join us on this journey. Uh, I mentioned the Foster book, this book, The More of Less by Joshua Becker. He was a youth pastor who became a minimalist blogger. There's so much good stuff in here, practicals about how to pursue this in all kinds of different ways. One of my favorite books, Abundant Simplicity by Jan Johnson, who's a spiritual director. She kind of tackles more of the inner world and how do we examine our own lives and hearts. And, um, and then she has some practical suggestions about schedules and possessions and things like that. Um, there's some great documentaries I mentioned by The Minimalists. We have a whole website dedicated to resources uh, at somamidtown.com. We have a spiritual formation website. We have teachings. We have books. We have documentaries that we link to. We have uh, a spiritual formation guide that will got a practice guide that you can use in your missional community. You can use in your family. You can use your discipleship group that has just prayers and questions for you to work through uh, as God leads. But I just want to encourage you as we close um, just to experiment to think about these as experiments in simplicity and generosity, small, spirit-led shifts in mindset and habits, right? Not to say, well, I've got to go and just sell everything. Not to say I've got to go and be crazy intense with this. Just to begin to experiment and to say, what, what would it look like for me to live without this for a season? What would it look like for me to not purchase anything for the next couple of weeks? What would it look like for me to be intentional and go around my house and touch and feel everything that I own, I own, that's mine, and to say, hey, this belongs to God, and what would it look like for me to release this, to give up control of this? Like, these are the kinds of experiments. And so that's actually this week's practice that we want to encourage you to uh, experiment with. It's a personal examine. Jesus says, watch out, be on guard um, against greed. So there's a spiritual vigilance, a self-examination that we want to invite us into. We want to begin to look and create space to look into our hearts, to look into our stories, to, to uh, seek out community. The greatest resource that you have for this journey of simplicity and generosity is your own heart and your own story, and then the community around you, right? You're going to need friends. You're going to need allies. You're going to need people that love you to go with you on this journey. And so we want to just ask questions like, hey, what emotions and desires are rising to the surface? Like some of you right now are angry. You're mad at me. I don't know why, but like you're angry. We're just reading Bible stories. You're angry. You're anxious. You're feeling shame or guilt or whatever, fear. Like just explore that. Like why am I feeling this way? What is it, what is it that I've learned to think about money and possessions that's making me feel so anxious? What did I learn in my family of origin about possessions and about money, right? We learned most of the things about possessions from our families. And so just like, hey, take a look at that. What is that? Why is that? And then how is culture and how is my reference group, the people that I follow on social media and otherwise around me shaping my desires? And what is that? What might I need to change about that so that I can live into this way? So we just want to invite you into that practice this week. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and put away our stuff. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take communion together, and we're going to be reminded that Jesus is with us and for us in this work. And so I want to pray over us. I want to encourage you to take a moment to just to think, to pray, to confess, to cry out to God. Whatever's kind of stirring up in you right now is to bring it before the Lord. And I want to pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Father, we thank you for these words of life. 
these words of freedom and joy that you invite us into this narrative of the abundance of your kingdom. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life to the full, abundant, super abundant life. Life is not found in possessions. Life is not found in the acquisition of more. More is found in your kingdom. And so help us to go wholeheartedly after you and your kingdom to find the freedom and the joy of simplicity and generosity as we journey together. God, would you give us grace and mercy Would you lead us to repentance? Would you help us to see our own blind spots, the ways that we have lowered our guard, the ways that we have fallen into patterns of greed and duplicity and um, complexity in ways that are not what you've invited us to experience as disciples? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.